Welcome to Cigar City Radio, episode number 54. I'm your host, Randy Ojeda, and making the magic happen, a man who unbuttons his button-down shirt, letting that chest hair flow, Mr. Jason Solanas. Man, I love hot sauce, dude. You do? Yeah, the hot sauce at George's place was so, so good. Tasty, right? Especially when I was and it gave me the warming sensations. Somehow that made Siri go, like Siri... Siri's responding. We should ask Siri what she thinks about this. She says, ooh. (laughs) It literally (laughs) says, ooh. Hey, you, Cigar City Radio listener. If you're listening to this show and you like it, please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, at Cigar City Radio. Also, please subscribe to our mailing list to get music, info, and news, and everything sent right to your inbox. Algorithms be damned. Just go to CigarCityManagement.com slash subscribe. You'll find the link there where you can put in your email address. We'll send you cool stuff, but we won't blow up your inbox. We promise. It's all very tastefully done. Like our show, right? Our show is very tastefully done. This episode of Cigar City Radio was recorded at Creative World Recording in Largo, Florida, one of the best music production studios in the Bay Area. You can go to them for all your recording, tracking, mixing, mastering needs. Basically, anything that you need with sound, you can do it at Creative World Recording. Again, they're in Largo, Florida. To make an appointment or find availability, you can call them at 727-593-1510, or you can find Creative World Recording on Facebook. We've got a bunch of new releases coming out for you in the next couple weeks through Cigar City MGMT Label Services. Just last Friday, we released the EP from Ethan E. called 10 Eagle Street. Great little album there. Uh, We also have a new EP coming out from Julia Powell called Rice in a Bottle. That comes out this Friday, the 27th. If you're a fan of the show, you'll remember our episode with Julia Powell just a few weeks ago. Uh, We also have a new single from Brooklyn producer Love Skills called What About Us. That's also coming out on Friday. Uh, Not to mention all the stuff we've been putting out the last couple weeks. New EP from Mama's Batch. Uh, this album from Soup Bone, that's fantastic. Live Greg Billings record. So much stuff coming out through the Cigar City MGMT label services. To keep up with all of it, follow us on Spotify. Search for Sar- Cigar City MGMT or subscribe to our mailing list at CigarCityManagement.com slash subscribe. Our guest on this episode is George Harris. Man, what do we even say about George Harris? The fucking legend. The, the man himself. We've known George for a good chunk of our lives and he's always been good to us he's helped us in every musical endeavor that we've ever done in some way mm-hmm. like he's just that dude uh, there's a lot of people in the music scene that owe so much to george he's just a really great guy and you know it was it was so fun to sit down and do this interview because i actually learned a lot about george that i didn't know you know, and anybody that knows George knows that George can talk a little bit, right? He can, but he never talks he, about himself. Yeah, no, he doesn't talk about himself that much. So I felt like going in, I was like, I, I've already heard all of George's stories, no, but man, no, I had no idea. No, and honestly, like we could, we could have sat and done an extra hour or two with George, or maybe we will. Maybe we'll have to come back in the future and do a volume two, volume three, just because he is an endless vault of information and knowledge and wisdom about. Most things menial and, <laughs> and trivial. No, no, no. George. We can do a hot sauce episode. Oh, George. we should definitely do a hot sauce episode, with George. And Sauce Boss. We'll get Sauce Boss. Dude, that would be great. Yeah. Sauce Boss, if you're listening to this, give us a, give us a holler. 
You can find George in Largo, Florida, Creative World Recording. He also plays in the Greg Billings Band and works with a number of other projects. Some of the best music coming out of the Bay Area is because of George. So find him online, find the Greg Billings Band, and download the new Soup Bone album, self-titled Soup Bone. We'll play some more of it for you at the end. So here it is, episode number 54. Legendary to this show, at least. You're, you've been mentioned quite a, quite a few times. And, and you've mastered songs that we've featured on just about every single show. That's true. That's a beautiful thing. Yeah. yeah. We're actually, um, right now, we're working on mastering the new Parrot Dream record, which Parrot Dream does the theme song for this show. Mm-hmm. So, you know, kudos to them and kudos to George to help give them. Uh, what, what's our, our word of the day? Crunchy. We're trying to give them a crunchy sound. Crunchy works. Crispy. No, not crispy. That sounds like that sounds like a breakfast cereal. <laughs> let's, let's go with crunchy. Crunchy. All right. <laughs> crunchy sounds more like a breakfast. Yeah, crunchy, crunchy, delight, even yeah. in milk. <laughs> Ren and Stimpy, gritty kitty. So, so George, I want to start at the beginning of George Harris, right? Wow. So, I don't remember that. I can. I can. You don't remember? That. I don't remember the beginning of George Harris. I don't think I was there. <laughs> <laughs> you were floating around somewhere. I would hope not. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You weren't really <laughs> Swimming there. around somewhere. Yeah, you weren't at the true beginning. But I know, I've heard you say before that you were born on an Indian reservation. No, no, not born. I was born in Kansas. Man. You were born in Kansas? In Wichita, Kansas. You know, I, know I mentioned this the other day, yeah. and Josh Lampkin was like, Iowa. Definitely Iowa. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I, I heard that. That's. I heard that one. That was good. Uh, no, but I, I lived in Iowa for a while. I lived all over the place. But Yeah. But I don't remember Kansas. I never, you know... I probably spent at most a year there, and uh, then my family moved. But the the earliest memories are when we lived in Arizona on the Indian Reservation. Okay, yeah, that's so I was we, in Arizona. That was grade school. Yeah. So what was that like growing up on an Indian reservation? It was cool, man. It was it was at the top of what what was then the top of the Sonora Desert, you know, in, in south of Mesa. And, uh, you know, we were really poor, so check it. We lived on an Indian reservation with musicians. That's how poor we were. Wow. You know? Like, yeah, musicians are poor enough. Well, we were, like, the next step. <laughs> you were, like, the poor musicians. <laughs> we had to live with the musicians. Oh, okay. You know? <laughs> and uh, it, was, it was cool, man. I, uh, that's how I learned to play music. You know, the drummer in the band... That my, my father was a motel manager, so there was a band at the motel, and I went there one night, and he saw me tapping my foot, and he came up to my parents. He said, I want to teach him drums. He's got a good time. Yeah. And they were like, anything. Just get him away, you know. Sure. So <laughs> they did that, you know, and, and that's where I started playing music was in Arizona. Really? On the Indian Reservation. And it was drums at first? Was- yeah. Well, no, first it was it was phone books, really. You know, okay. It was phone books. And then I came home one day from school, and there was this little kitty drum set, you know. And, and I started playing 
at the club when I was six. Yeah. You know, with the band. It's pretty hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> That's cool. Yeah. Six year old drummer singing Winchester Cathedral and shit. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. I guess. I guess. <laughs> I don't I don't remember much of it, man. It's, yeah. You know. So but, how long how long were you doing that? How long was uh, um that was me, sorry. Wow. I don't know. We went to uh I guess a couple maybe a year, you know. And and I was going to grade school there, which was a trip, you know, going to grade school on the res was made Columbus Day interesting. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. um it was, you know, it was really a cool place to grow up there because it was such a hodgepodge, you know. It was like Mexican cats and black people and you know, obviously, you know, Native Americans and and me the token white guy. And but I remember I remember we did that for a while. We got like there were some articles in the paper and you know, the AP picked it up and we went and did Mike Douglas show and stuff, you know, for a minute. Like it was it's all I don't remember any of that, man. Wow. Like I know it happened. I saw like pictures and stuff, you know, but it was such a I, I remember walking into this giant TV studio and it was so enormous that it just freaked me out. You know, my little mind couldn't handle it. Like the ceilings were like the sky high, yeah, you know, yeah. and these lights and stuff. And and it freaked me out. So I, I I don't remember much of that. And then we had to move. My dad was a motel manager and he was like a fix-it guy for Holiday Inns. Mm-hmm. So we would like, he would like work at a place and then set up a thing where they would be profitable and we'd split and go to some other place that needed his services. And we'd live at the motel, you know, and uh, so we went. We went to the next place, and you know, it was just like that. That's such couldn't a, take the drums. It was you know, you couldn't take the drums. No, hell no. So how did you stick with music over the years, cool. moving around as a kid? Um, well, it was it was weird. We when we finally got to Iowa, I think I might have been eight, something like that, when we moved to Iowa City or Coralville, actually, which is like outside Iowa City, but it's Coralville in Iowa which is a trip. Yeah. Are, do they even have corals? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it was underwater at one point. There's coral there. And um, some guy came to the door one day and uh, said, we'll uh, get free accordion rental if you take accordion lessons. My mom was like, so I'll get him out of here. Okay. Like, so <laughs> I became an accordionist at that yeah. point. Yeah. So this is how you became the world's greatest accordion player. Oh, yeah, right? the world's greatest. Absolutely. <laughs> sure. We should, uh, we yeah. should have Nina in here. Yeah. Oh God, it's horrible. I've I've heard you say this before that you, as an accordion player, you know accordion, but you also know enough to not play. Well, no, that's that's others. the definition of a gentleman. Oh, I someone see. that knows how to play accordion and chooses not to. <laughs> okay, okay, yeah, <laughs> that's what it I is. spare the world that that horror. Yeah, uh, of, I, I've I've wanted to watch you play accordion like, <laughs> my whole life. Like since I've as long as I've known you, I've been wanting to see a, a George Harris accordion session, and I've never uh, seen it. Uh, there's a reason. <laughs> <laughs> have you ever have you ever whipped out the accordion? Yeah, the- man. I somebody posted a thing on Facebook not long ago. I again I didn't remember, but it was from like an like early '90s session. Okay, where like there was a spot in a song and and. I said, well, how about an accordion solo? You know, and, and I did a little, it wasn't even a solo. It was just like a little interlude in a, in a, in a bridge, you know, of a song. Yeah. Just some accordion. And uh, I had forgotten about that, but that, I don't play it too often anymore, man. Mm-hmm. I probably yeah. should. Yeah. I mean, it's a cool instrument, but when you're in Iowa 
at least when I was at that time, dude, it, it was polkas and uh, polkas and some polkas. <laughs> yeah, a little bit of classical music, a little bit. Okay. Little yeah. bit. But the cla- even the classical music was like William Tell Overture, you know, yeah, like just, yeah. just horrific. But it was cool. The good thing about that was I got my reading chops together. I got to I learned to read, and and I learned theory. You know, I had to learn how to write music and read music and theory, and and that kind of prepared me for, you know, wanting to play Black Sabbath music on a bass yeah. or something. Yeah, yeah <laughs> whatever yeah. was next. So how does that happen? Yeah, how do you go from? Oh, paper route, man. So you did you just save up for a guitar? Is yeah, that, absolutely. Yeah. Dude, I bought a, a 62 SG for 200 bucks. All my paper route money for like getting up at 5 o'clock in the morning for a year. Yeah. You know, to go buy this used guitar and uh, learn to, you know, kind of teach myself to play. And, and a bass, too. Yeah. I got some kind of off-brand bass that I don't even remember what it was, but. You know, and and then we moved to Florida, which is kind of where I still am. Yeah. You know? <laughs> <laughs> what part of Florida did you move to? Madeira Beach. Oh, so so you've always kind of been in this area then? Yeah, since, man. since that point. Culture shock, man. Yeah. From Coralville, Iowa, to Madeira Beach. You know, it was it was just freaked me out. Yeah. <laughs> unbelievable. Yeah, you were sur- like suddenly surrounded yeah. by water. Yeah. We had water and like you know. Florida, yeah, like, yeah, beautiful women, completely different. Yeah, thing than Iowa. yeah, and and all the things that go with Florida um, that are not beautiful women. Yeah, um, the swampy the, stuff, the gators, people. that, and and just you know, like like the whole uh, culture shock, the mm. culture shock. I'd never met a kid that couldn't read until I came to Florida for high school. Mm. Wow, like I'm in high school, and the, ed- the education up north was just head and shoulders above what it was here. Mm-hmm. So that was the first shock I got was like, holy God, man, there are guys here that can't read that don't like, I mean, it was incredible to me. It was just, you know, I took yeah. for granted. I was, I had like almost enough credits to graduate high school when we moved here and I was in ninth grade. And so I was, became a troublemaker instantly. Right. Mm. You know, why? Cause you were just bored. Yeah, yeah, there was it wasn't really challenging, you know. It wasn't it wasn't uh it's Timmy. Fucking runner. We'll find him. We'll find him. We will get him. He will serve. He gets away today. <laughs> so so at what point when did you start? like actually playing in rock and roll bands though so it was here oh, it was man. here in florida then right? yeah oh yeah 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 um first it was you know just kind of in my room playing guitar like yeah kids do you know trying to put the needle on the record in the right spot and not scratch it up too much trying to learn that song or whatever yeah well that's not what kids do anymore well obviously not <laughs> But no, but yeah, as kids, there did. were no YouTube lessons. There were right, no, there's right, nothing, yeah. man. No, the resources no tabs. were non-existent. Yeah, I taught myself to play, and I, of course, I was completely. My technique was just pitiful. Yeah, you know, but I just wanted to make the sound. You know, I just wanted to, mm. to you know. What was, what was the first record you tried to do that to? What was the? Uh, man, when we were in Iowa, the first record I got, like, 
my dad came back to the room one night and he had this three or four albums, you know, vinyl. And he said, you ever heard any of these people? And one of them was this long haired dude with a beard sitting in a chair with like rolls of carpet next to him and, and eating an orange or something. And it was the first Eric Clapton solo record. Yeah. I had no idea who, you know, I was like, I think I heard that name, you know, like I was pretty, I was pretty far removed from that sort of stuff. Yeah. At least at that time. And, and, uh, so he, he's like, well, these guys left it here. And apparently Clapton had stayed at the motel and left these records. So I actually got the first records I got were Eric Clapton. That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, he just left them in the motel. And, yeah, and, yeah. and years later, man, it, the, the tragedy of this story is years later, I found out that that was a test pressing. Really? Yeah. It yeah. was like like his pressing to, I guess, approve the mastering or whatever. Yeah, you know, yeah. Or just to have, whatever. And it had a different take of one of the songs on it. And that ended up being like my school for guitar was the first Clapton solo album. And and I remember years later hearing like one of the songs come on the radio and going, that's not right. That's a different, that solo is different. That's not right. And he'd gone back and replaced it mm. like with a different take of the song. So I had wow. like a take that was never released. And wow. of course I wore it completely to shreds, you know? Yeah, yeah. And I mean, it, how how could you know? You know? Yeah, no, I know. And it's, you know, it's completely unplayable after that. Yeah. So, but it was, you know, that's how I learned was just, wearing out these whatever obscure records I could come in contact with. I feel like you're like with that kind of origin story, you're like destined to be a rock and roll. Yeah, it's kind leader, of weird. You know? yeah. Like you, you, I stumbled upon Eric Clapton's yeah. test personal stuff. Right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right. Uh, yeah. yeah. And, and, and also like I went to school in Iowa city in grade school to like this really cool ungraded school mm. where the students were teaching and so there's like college age, you know, kids right out of high school are teaching grade school. And it was ungraded. You'd go in and, and fill out the little paper at the beginning of the day. Like, how, how long are you going to do math? How long are you going to do whatever science? And when I walked home one day, you know, my parents were pretty clear about stay away from the long haired people because they're hippies and we don't want to get you involved in that. And so, of course... I was really curious about these long-haired hippies. Right. <laughs> Had some as teachers. It was great. Mm. But I walked by the student union one time, and there's this loud music coming out of the back. The doors are open, and there's a bunch of long-haired guys standing around. So I'm like, well, I'm going to go see what... And it was the James Gang. It was like Joe Walsh. Wow. Playing soundcheck in the afternoon at the student union. You know, And and I walked back there and heard that, and it was like, it was like that moment people talk like, oh. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. It's like, ooh, <laughs> this is the shit, you know? Yeah, yeah. So it, that was that was a big part of it too. That was a big, you know, that whole thing happened in Iowa. The whole, the weirdest thing, you know, the weirdest two things. Yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. So then, what was the first band then that you were in? I don't know. I it, it just played with some friends in the garage, like you do when you're in high school. Yeah, you know. Um. There's a couple guys. There's there's one guy that's still around here that that I'm in touch with that played bass. That you know my buddy Steve played, mm-hmm. and and uh, the drummer that we that we played with in high school has passed on. But um, you know most of it, most of what I did at that time was was like the the jazz band in school. Yeah, 
because that was the other great break of my life was I came down here and I wanted to get into band and I wanted to play bass, right? Because I was doing that more than guitar at the time. So I go to Seminole High School and John Lamb is the band director, hmm. right? John Lamb is, for those of you that don't know, which is probably a lot of people, he was a bassist for Duke Ellington. Oh, wow. I and didn't know that. Yeah. Josh was telling us this at The Independent. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, he was he was Duke Ellington's bassist, and he taught at the Philadelphia Conservatory. So, I spent my high school life trying to impress this guy, which of course is never going to happen. Yeah, you know? right. Yeah, and I would even bring in records to try and like you know. I remember I brought in a Return to Forever record, which was Chick Corea's fusion band, you know, and it had Stanley Clark playing bass, who's legendary. And I said, I said, hey, check this out, Mr. Lamb. Have you you heard this stuff? And he look, picks up the record and he looks at it. And he puts it down, and he picks up his upright bass, and he goes, is that Stanley? Did he say this? And he, and he plays a Stanley Clark, like this ripping <laughs> Stanley Clark thing that I'm like, how could you have possibly known that? You know, and he goes, oh, man, I taught Stanley. You know, uh, so that was it. Yeah, I was like, oh, <laughs> I worship this man. Yeah, right. You know? So you so, had every experience coming up that indicated to you that music should be part of your life. Well, I, I like, yeah, I didn't really see any other... You know, I had I had some some other jobs that were cool. I mean, I had a great upbringing. You know, my first job, my first job that I ever got was like there was a a grapefruit grove across the street from our house in in Largo, mm-hmm. and there was an old guy named Chester who was a beekeeper, and there was his grapefruit grove. So on the weekends, we sold. We had a little stand on the on the street there, and we sold honey. And, and honeycomb and all that kind of thing. And, you know, bushels of grapefruit and bags of grapefruit for tourists. You know, we'd sit out on the street and sell that stuff. And so my first gig was like keeping bees and, and picking fruit and, you know, taking care of the grove and all that stuff. And it was really cool. Oh, that is cool. You know, and there was an alligator that would walk through there at night, you know, and just hang out, look, go from pond to pond. You know, the stuff that used to happen in Florida before yeah. it was built to yeah. a ridiculous extent, you know. I mean, this is like very near here. Yeah. This is probably two miles from where we're sitting right now. <laughs> wow. And so that was that was a cool job, you know, and I thought, man, I'd like to be part of like, you know, I, my other thought was like maybe I could be like a marine biologist or I'd like to do something with that, you know, and it just uh, didn't pan out as I was too absorbed <laughs> trying to impress John Lamb. <laughs> <laughs> That's what which, it all comes which back incidentally to, right? still has not happened. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so so you you're playing in the high school band and everything and then after high school ends you, did you go to college? Did you go to school? Yeah, well, or? I I went to to St. Pete which was JC then. It was mm-hmm. junior college because John was there, you know, and I wanted to continue. I was playing was upright a great guitar and, teacher and, there who was kind of crazy named Frank Mullen. Mm-hmm. And I kind of took lessons from him, but he was like, he was really opinionated and really jazz oriented, you know? And I was, I was into like all sorts of stuff, you know, I was into a myriad of music uh, from a young age. And so I couldn't, I couldn't really deal with that too well. And I was so overschooled, to be honest at that point, man, that the first time somebody said, Hey man, you want a road gig? You know, I was like, uh, let me think about that. Yeah. <laughs> and so I went on the road, you know, I went out and 
And after that, I took whatever tour I could get for years, you know, yeah. for a couple of years. What was that first road gig? Do you remember? It was, it was funny. It was a country gig. Okay. It was, it was a band called White Lightning Express. And all the other guys in the band were really old, dude. They were, it was like geriatric cats, you know, they were in their <laughs> 30s. And <laughs> it looked that way to me, you know. Yeah, right. And, and, but they were badasses, you know, they're like really good, really good players. And so I went out there and, you know, got my ass handed to me every night. But we got to play these cool gigs where country music was kind of in the toilet in those days it was kind of beginning this switch to whatever it is now coming out of nashville um and that we would play our own tunes and our own sets you know whatever mm. some covers and our own kind of stuff for three or four nights a week those were the days when you would go into a club for five nights six nights you'd have a stint and you'd play or, or two weeks mm. you know and then on the weekends at that time a lot of country artists couldn't afford to tour with a band so they would just come out and we'd learn their material and and back them. Mm, so okay. we'd spend a night or two nights with these, you know, mostly B-grade country acts, you know, because the, the great guys would still be able to take their bands. But it was surprising how, you know, how many people I got to play with, I got to back that, you know, were kind of down on their careers around that time. So it was very interesting. Yeah. So that was the first one. Was was country yeah. gigs? Yeah, it was, around yeah. what year was this? So oh, people gosh. can get some context. Seventy eight, seventy nine, something like that. It all runs together. I'm so old, <laughs> man. <laughs> but I mean, that sounds like a pretty interesting time to be a rock and roll musician, though. You know, it, or I guess it, a country well, musician. The, yeah, the rock and roll thing was headed in a direction that was really weird at that time, which is why I, I kind of played the country gig. Because yeah. I didn't feel like, you know, wearing spandex and using hairspray. Sure. And, and Did you wind up ever wearing spandex and using hairspray? I did wear spandex uh, for a minute. All right. Like, for a minute. <laughs> like I actually had, I think, one, maybe two pair of spandex. And, and there was one gig where I did wear them. And uh, um, hopefully there are no pictures from that. <laughs> but Was it like the Spinal Tap tours where women just losing their minds? Uh, and, you know, I'd like to think it, but... but <laughs> I, I don't think so, no. No, no. So if you did generally avoid the spandex thing, where did you wind up going after this stint Man, as a country? I did a lot, of, a lot of that country stuff and, mm. and a lot of like what would be considered jam bands now, you know, a lot of Allman Brothers-ish things mm. and, and really powerful country bands, which at the time was something, you know, they called it outlaw mm. music then, like Waylon and Willie was happening. And so there was that, there was that stuff where you could play pretty powerful stuff in that genre, you know, like we had a, a drummer with two kicks and, you know, and a cowboy hat. Yeah. <laughs> but it was, it was, a you know, the band was loud and, yeah. and, you know, it was had, heavy. It was heavier for, yeah. yeah, it was for lack of a better term. Yeah. And then when did you start recording? When Man, I always did that a little bit. Okay. I always did. I, I had like, I had a cassette recorder when I was a little kid and uh, like I used to just record stuff, anything. And I remember my cousin, my cousin Kyle, who was a singer for Soup Bone, when he was a little kid, when he was like six years old, I recorded him singing like lullabies and shit like that on my little cassette machine. 
And I kept that tape until I produced his first record. Wow. And when I sent him the first copy, like I sent him like a disc in the mail, I like left like 20 seconds at the end of the record and then all that stuff came on. Like I put that on oh, a disc, cool. you know? So he's... He, they're having like a big listening party at his house, and then all, then they're playing. They're like, hey, man, great record, right, right. and all of a sudden, it comes on this little kid singing, you know, silly, you know, kid songs. You know, it was him. So that's I used to do that, like, I guess most of my life, you know. And I would bounce. I had the two cassette players, and I could bounce back and forth, and add a part. And mm. then I got like a decoder, four track reel to reel, which was big time shit, you know. And uh, you know, the same way all the all the audio geeks end up in this business yeah you know i, I did the same thing man you know i mixed live sound sometimes when i wasn't playing you know there was a time when i came off the road for that, that i just didn't even want to play anymore and uh i just came back here and started working with bands and mixing and you know i'd play a little bit here and there but i, I was into the audio thing at that point yeah so it just kind of grew into that i did session work as a player and I'd always hang out, you know, with the producer or the engineer, like, man, what does that button do? Why is that why does that sound so good when you turn that? You know, like, you know, figure that shit out. Yeah. And and it just kind of morphed, you know. It was like uh, I did uh got hired by a, a a studio at one point to go in and, and be a writer and a session musician for a, a band. It was kind of like a private place, and they had a glam band that that like you know i definitely wasn't good looking enough to be in <laughs> so um i was like i played guitar parts and i would help the producer you know and I, that's where i learned a lot of stuff about multi-track and everything and and you know you just i ended up like living there practically you know just being there 20 hours a day jesus you know because it was there and you could mm. use it you know like who yeah. wouldn't you know had like a 16 track machine and you know a bunch of tape and i just hey, how can you take advantage of it yeah and like yeah. a lin 9000 i could program the drum machine you know back in, <laughs> you know like the prince drum machine thing yeah. and, and i was like totally into that man you know no, i feel yeah. it i mean like if i had a studio i would never leave there either yeah know? like that's <laughs> yeah it's it's a, it's serious it's a serious addiction it's like drugs man yeah you know? yeah especially because you know, you the, the the problem with studios is like you don't you have to keep upgrading them too, and you have yeah. to keep you have to keep up with the time. So, and and know. at the time, you know, now you can you could have a studio. You have one of these little boxes. Mm-hmm. You know, you have a little two channel, four channel, whatever. You have a little converter box and a computer, and you have a studio, mm-hmm. and it's great. But at that time, man, it was like stupidly expensive to have audio. Yeah, it was like it was insane. Like you know. Uh, a 16 track machine was $25,000, you know, and you had to have a huge console, you know, and tape was a hundred bucks a reel or 150 a reel for, for, uh, 16 minutes and 33 seconds of, of audio, you know? So it was, you know, not many people had home studios when I started, Yeah, you know, I had the four track and stuff and that was all right. But to get that big sound, you know, you had to have the two inch tape, man, you had to have, you had to have at least that, you know. Yeah. So I think that's something that people like, especially today, don't realize is that now you can do sort of infinite takes of anything that yeah. you want. But back then, you, you were recording the tape. You had to, you know, that's it. Yeah. The, when you ran out of tape, cost. that was it. 
Yeah, and it, it's it's valuable to, to come up in that time when there was like he had four tracks, mm-hmm. you know, and he had to decide what you're going to put on, and you had to make the decision like, okay, we're keeping that period because mm-hmm. it all got mixed together. If you wanted more tracks, you had to bounce it. You had to take the four tracks and bounce it to a track on another thing, and then record that on one track, and you could add three, and then you'd bounce it again, and you do little mixes each time, and then you get to eight tracks. And then like, oh, who's ever going to use eight tracks? This is great, you know. And of course, you'd end up bouncing that eight track again, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then you get sixteen, and oh, you know, it was the same thing until we got to twenty-four. And then when we got to twenty-four, the next step was okay. Now you got to print this time code on one track. That was a new thing. Like the, the first, there was MIDI time code, which you could you could synchronize your synthesizers and sequencers to the tape. So you didn't have to record them. They could just go straight to the final mix. And you could record other stuff on the other, you know, 22 tracks or something because mm-hmm. you couldn't record right next to code or it would you'd lose your code and then your whole thing is gone. But then you would get, you got this stuff called SMPTE time code, which is the Society of Motion Picture and Television Engineer. And that was the code you see on the bottom of the, like, like when they show footage of movies mm-hmm. that, yeah. that didn't get used. You see that little, the, the, the eight numbers just flashing real fast by. That was SMPTE time code. And it was minutes, hours, minutes, seconds, and frames for film. So you could synchronize audio to film. So that's, that's when you could synchronize multi-track to film. But you could also synchronize all kinds of stuff to film, like Pro Tools. You know, mm-hmm. like when that came along, you know, the digital workstations, the, the initial ones, which were god-awful. <laughs> but... But there was potential there. Like the editing was just brilliant, you know? Yeah. So you could synchronize that to your two-inch tape and have some extra tracks and, you know, kind of... And you could toss stuff into the Pro Tools and cut it up. Like if you had a bad snare hit, you put your snare track in Pro Tools and replace that with a good one and then put it back on the tape and you're good to go. Wow. And it so that was brand know. new. Yeah. 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 That was... I was I was working with like, like uh, Digidesign was the company that did pro tools initially but before that it was called sound designer 2 and you had two tracks of audio and it was uh uh it was on one of those old macs you know and you could put like a song in there you could put your two tracks so which could be a stereo mix if you wanted and you could actually edit and move the things in you could hear it but there was always a little click in there so you had to render it which would take 45 minutes and then if you didn't like it you had to undo and do it again. <laughs> oh, God. so it wasn't real popular at yeah. first you yeah. know and but but I, there was potential you could see the potential and then when pro tools came out the studio i worked at had the first pro tools rig in central florida right they went and got it mm-hmm. and i remember the other studios around here guys going oh i don't know why you wasted your money on that that shit's not gonna be worth a damn and there's there's a big studio around here that like the owners really gave me grief over that and five years later they sold their tape machines and had pro tools (laughs) but um nay the naysayers yeah yeah so you know i went through the whole deal uh, audio wise which is really valuable you know yeah you got to see it change yeah Yeah. And, and see the value of like you know do you make a decision what do you do how do you you know there's value in both sides of that recording. You, like you talked about earlier, Randy, the the part where you can have unlimited tracks. Yeah. Well, that's kind of cool. Like you can go sing a song if you're a performance-oriented artist 
and and you're not comfortable with punching in a word at a time or a phrase or in the middle of a lyric or whatever, you just sing through it ten times and go through and grab the best words or the best line or whatever of of each take, you know? Yeah. And that's that's kind of valuable in a way. But it also takes away from the the part where you had to be really, really good. Yeah. You had to be very well rehearsed too. Yeah, you had to come yeah. in and really be good. Like session musicians in the days of analog tape were phenomenal players because you couldn't fix it. You know, you, what you got was what you got. And, and nine tenths of the time, they're all in the same room. So there's bleed, you know, all mm-hmm. those great old records were done like that. Everybody in the same room. And if you solo the guitar track, you hear the drums. If you solo the drums, you hear the guitar, you hear the bass. Mm. You might hear a guy singing in the other room, whatever. Yeah. But it was you balanced for that, you know. And and so that was a way that was a great way to do it. Because you knew what the record was going to sound like from the moment you, you started recording. Yeah. And I, I think that's part of what gives a lot of those older records that like that that sound, you know. Yeah, the charm of it. Yeah. You know, there was no click track, there was no you know, you didn't, a lot of them are very imperfect, but that's what, I love that. Yeah. I used to sit and just listen to them over and over, listen to listen to my records over and over and go, hey, did you hear that, man? I think the guy said something there. Did you hear that, that little, uh, oh, listen, man, Jimmy Page played a wrong note, man. Listen to that. <laughs> yeah, like, you know, yeah. 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 So, Point so it out to your friends. Right, right. <laughs> So I know you you lived in New York for a while too, though. Right? Yeah, yeah. I went and worked at, at Record Plant right at the end, which is a sad, sad story. But it was a great experience, man. I got to go up there and 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 be involved in that iconic studio, man, in in New York City. It was just turning, changing over to they. Somebody bought it, and it was called Three Two One for a minute, and then it went under. But it was the place where. Just about everything that I listened to as a kid was recorded, you know, short of the Muscle Shoals stuff or the, but as far as New York records. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, it was just a phenomenal experience. So what, at what time did you work at Record Plant? Like early 90s, late, you know, 90, around there. Who were some of the artists that were coming through at that time? Oh, man. There were lots of people. Um sabotage was there oddly really? enough when i first went up there sabotage was doing a record uh-huh. you know and so i'm up there and they're like my buddies are there like wow this is weird you know yeah yeah i know florida people in new york and <laughs> and uh but you know uh, uh white zombie oh, was yeah, like yeah. doing a record you know rob zombie and but it was white zombie it wasn't rob zombie then yeah it was, yeah it was... it was the band yeah. And that that was interesting. There was a there was a bunch of crazy stuff going on. You know, Lou Reed was around and and uh just all kinds wow. of amazing you, stuff. Yeah, cuz I've I've heard so many stories from your record playing days. I think didn't you tell me like Skinny Puppy was there at one point. No, that too? was down here. That was here? That was that was at Panda when I was there. Oh. Was it wasn't Skinny Puppy, it was Ogre. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. And and uh they had kind of been on a hiatus and I worked with him for a minute. Yeah. Very strange session. Very strange experience. Yeah, I can only imagine. He's an yeah. interesting dude. That guy. Yeah, he's a strange dude. Yeah, yeah. But it, you know, it was a thing. That was cool. But that was here. That was in Florida. Oh, I didn't of know all that. Weird things. So, did you come basically straight from New York to Panda? Well, I was at Panda before I went to New York. Oh, I didn't and know that. and I had a chance to go up there and work and put in this 
sound designer two system in in John Lennon's old room. Oh right. In yeah. in uh in the record plant. So like, you know, my first day up there, you go up to the eighth floor and you go down the hall and you go back to this room with cork all over the walls. It was John Lennon's private room. Like his label just bought out a room there at record plant and he just went in there whenever he wanted to work. And it was it was kind of eerie to go in there and just the vibe of it, you know, like it was kind of intimidating. Like, yeah. You know, the first time I sat on the toilet, he had a private toilet right across the hall from that room. You sat on John Lennon's toilet? Right. Um, <laughs> see? <laughs> yeah, no, you no. Get no what I, what yeah, I feel, you know? I, I get Like you. I'm sitting there and, and I'm thinking, man, and I'm looking at this mosaic tile on the floor and it's a really cool old room, you know, in Manhattan. I'm, oh, I wonder how many songs John wrote right here. Right on that, right on that toilet. <laughs> right. <laughs> but it was, it was that vibe, you know. It was, it was, it was kind of crazy. Yeah, probably a lot of the Yoko and those songs were written on that toilet. Yeah, who knows? <laughs> who knows, man? I have no way of knowing that. But it was, it was a cool thing to be in, around that. Kind of made you up your game a little bit, just to be around those people. Yeah, you know, and all the cats coming through there were all heavyweights. They sure. Were all, you know, all the engineers were heavyweight guys. You know. It was, there was Jay Messina and, and Jack Douglas. and Although I didn't meet Jack there, oddly enough. I didn't meet either of those guys there. They worked really? there a lot. But I didn't meet them until I got back to Florida. <laughs> that's, that's so crazy. Yeah. But it's, it's, you know, it's a small world. Yeah. It's a small music world. Yeah. You know? Wouldn't want to paint it, but it's a small world. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's one interesting thing, too, is like, you know, being in the music industry, everybody always says it's, you know, becomes a catchphrase that the this industry is about relationships. You know, that it's about... Oh, it's all, yeah. that's, you always hear that the music industry is about relationships, but nobody really takes that seriously. Nobody really like understands that it legitimately is about, you know, you got to be good to people and then people will be good to you. Oh yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, but I feel like you are a perfect example of the type of person that you really like, you can just see your, you know, George's army of, <laughs> of like, you know, network and people that you, that like love well, you. If and, you, you live know, long enough, you know, you yeah. get that, you get it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah well like i remember last year when we were looking for a place to stay for south by southwest and we're just like right. george do you know anybody in austin and you made a couple phone calls and we had a, a house to stay in you yeah know? that's funny how, how does that happen that's crazy well see that was a person that i was on the road with in one of those early bands yeah that was that was like you know we we i hadn't been in touch with with her in in years yeah shout out hillary by but, the way yeah hillary These and fine robert. Moments, Hi, hillary. hillary and robert yeah and and you know we had done a bunch of stuff together. We'd been in like little, you know, top forty bands and and been in road bands and and stuff like that. And yeah, and I knew she was there. I'd just gotten in touch with her on Facebook, which is another weird story. <laughs> just Be- Facebook in general. Well, not not just that, but <laughs> here's the deal. Uh, I had I had health issues for a long time. I had a, yeah. I, and I I have I have a hereditary kidney disease called polycystic kidney disease or PKD, and I got a transplant almost three years ago and I hadn't seen Hillary in easy 20 years and I'm coming out of the hospital at Tampa general. Like I'm getting in the car to get taken home and I'm on serious drugs. You know, I'm (laughs) on like, you know, morphine and what what have you. And my phone rings. I I look down and it's like, you know, I don't know this number. Who cares? I'm on drugs. I'm going to answer the phone. And it was Hillary. 
And it was such a surreal thing. Like I hadn't talked to her in, you know, literally decades, yeah. right? Yeah. And she's like, "This is this George?" Like they, they from. I was like, "Holy God, man!" You know, and I was like, "Is this real? Is this really happening?" You know, it was this whole <laughs> surreal deal. So I, and we ended up hooking up you guys. So yeah, that's yeah. great. But, but all this stuff comes around, you know. Yeah. Well, that's the, that's part a, of the deal. You just try to be good to people, and and yeah, it comes around. Well, and I mean, you've always been good to us. Like, I mean, you're wearing the the Black Smoke Theory shirt right now, yes. <laughs> which was a band that Jason and I were in in high school. You the know? Mighty Black Smoke Theory. Yeah, and that's how we met. You was uh, it was actually a recommendation from Al Cohen, who rest in peace. Right. Yeah. God I mean, bless him. He passed away a couple years ago, I think. But um, Al Cohen suggested I, I was taking voice lessons from al and i was we were at the point where we're like all right we got a couple songs we're ready to record and uh i was like who should we record with and he, you were the first name that he that he mentioned so dude, that was a blast too that was fun <laughs> was it yeah you guys <laughs> you guys were wacko man high school kids it was great for me man yeah well that that's what i thought was cool is like we walked in and it's like you're this serious serious musician you know and like <laughs> and there was the board with yeah. different names for albums yeah, it could well, be anything it was wonderful well yeah it was just well, a wonderland of creativity there was there was stuff that we had like never seen before like we had never been in a recording studio you know right. so for you to take the time to you know record music for a high school band it's like not, there's not a lot of engineers that are going that are going to deal with that oh kind yeah of shit. but if you're smart you do that sort of stuff yeah because man there was see i you, what you guys don't get is like i got a lot out of that like i get to learn and and you guys had this came in with this this raw energy, man. You know that only only high you can school only kids. have at yeah. that time of your life, man. Yeah. You know because you don't know, so you don't know what you can't do, which is beautiful. Yeah. There's nothing better than not knowing what you can't do. <laughs> <laughs> you know you're going there fearless, man. Yeah, and and like I you know I try to do that now. I, yeah. I always try to be to be fearless about things. That's yeah. that's that's one of the things that is is a motto for me like i want to do something different every time i record and and i love that man you guys were like just like yeah man we're gonna we're gonna do this and we're gonna do that and i'm like okay let's figure out how to do that you know <laughs> well i think i think i remember it uh we we did a four song ep with you first and i'm pretty sure we only booked one day right <laughs> so yeah we're we gonna finish this, we're gonna we're finish like, this yeah, in a day we, we're gonna do these four songs in yeah. one day and we had practiced and practiced and practiced and thought that we were that we knew we could do it, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I'm pretty sure we did. You like did. I think we had to we come did. back from mixing and we everything. We came back and did some. But we tracked the whole thing in a yeah, day. Yeah, easy. You know, it wasn't. I don't know if it was very good or but not. But see, that's the beauty, man. <laughs> you didn't know you couldn't do it. Yeah. So why not do it? You know. Yeah. And come we did. in and just kill it. You know, kill it, need it. That's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. There's not a lot of bands that would even that would even try that nowadays. Yeah. Well, but that used to be the way records were made. Uh, you that's know. That's true. Like yeah. when I got to talk to my idols as far as audio engineering stuff, you know, when I got to talk to Tom Dowd and and Roger Nichols and and those kind of people, and and Jack Douglas and Jay Messina and all these great people I've I've had the opportunity to meet that have helped teach me because they're such cool people. Um, that's the way it was done, man. You know, everybody just came in and it was like kill the guy with the ball. Yeah, you know, <laughs> you had all these great players. And it's like okay, do it. You know, yeah, yeah. press record, you know, that was, that was Tom Dowd's great advice that he gave me in Miami was he was, he was like, yeah, man, what, I don't care if you're ready or not, always record. 
like when they're practicing when guys are sitting up just jacking off record yeah <laughs> because that's where the good stuff's gonna happen sure you know? and yeah. he was so right man and see you guys kind of stumbled into that the, without knowing that you know you guys yeah. had no idea how a record was made or how anything but this is what we do we come in and we play yeah exactly and that's the way the original stuff was done that's the way the stuff you loved was done yeah you know and for us that's all we knew how to do because you know right how else would you do it if you weren't surrounded by your friends in a, in a garage a lot of know? value in that man yeah a lot of value in that. Yeah. It's a were, great thing. Those were good days. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. I so, miss that. So I got to ask, uh, on the record at least, Ooh. about the NOLA hat. Oh, this? Yeah. This is a Harry Connick hat, man. Okay, yeah. Yeah, it's from it's from a Harry Connick show, that's all. Uh, but I was, you know, I, like any musician, I have been through a long period of obsession with, with a certain period of new orleans music yeah um well like the well actually like most and... of new york most of most of new orleans new york new orleans music you know back to uh professor longhair and, okay, and yeah. james booker you know the piano guys and mm. and uh even like dixieland you know that kind of stuff came a lot of it came from there one of the first shows i ever saw in my life was was louis armstrong my grandfather took me to see the Dukes of Dixieland when I was a kid, I was a little kid, and it just stained me forever. You know, <laughs> it just <laughs> it just got embedded on me. You know, yeah. And and uh, so I I you know became obsessed with yeah the meters for sure. Sure, yeah. I mean, Jesus, that's like the it's like the well of where everything comes from. It's that that area. There's so much good stuff, man. So much, so many great players, and so much where it's all about just the feel and the groove and all those great, and Alan Toussaint, all those great records that came out of there, man. Yeah. Just amazing stuff that should, had no right coming out of there because it, there was no like proper huge studio like LA or even Muscle Shoals or New York or wherever. There was nothing like that in New Orleans. There were these little huts where they recorded stuff, man, and they made these amazing records, these amazing statements. Uh, because the talent was there. I mean, Ray Charles was there. You know, that's yeah, where he yeah. learned to play stride piano. You know, that's where he was when when he got signed to Atlantic. He was coming out of New Orleans, where, you know, after Florida, incidentally, Ray was a Tampa guy too. Yeah, yeah, we've yeah. had that conversation previously with John Capuya. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Wow. So that's... you know, if at some point in in almost, I guess, I don't know, in most musicians I know, in their lives. You got to go, you know, you got to, you got to study that stuff. Yeah. You know. So that's, is that's your nod to, to, to Nola? To, yeah. To and I just love that stuff, man. I love that period. I love the meters and, and, you know, like I said, Dr. John, man. Yeah. Holy God. Mm -hmm. You know, all that stuff, all that, that whole scene, man, the Neville brothers, you know, and I've been lucky enough to like meet some of these guys and, and you know, get to figure out how they played this stuff. You know, I got to work with Leo Nocentelli from the meters at a club when I got to mix his band. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and that was like, you know, I wasn't sure I wanted to touch that man. I was like, Jesus, what if I screw it up? <laughs> yeah. <You know>? yeah. <laughs> this is Leo Nocentelli, man. What if I screw up? Right. Right. It was a blast, man. So yeah. meeting all these people, um, over the years, what, is is there a particular piece of advice or 
uh, a life philosophy or something that has stuck out for you? I wish. I wish I had one. I don't, man, I've just been, I never had like a, I was never smart enough to set a goal and just say, I'm going to do this and I'm going to go to this place. And it kind of just fell at me. You know, you end up in, you end up following some path and, and that leads to your next thing, whatever it is. And I just, I've always been of the opinion where you, you kind of accept those gifts, you know, like if, if, if a song comes to you, you write it down. You know, because it, they might not, you know, it's like getting a Christmas present. If you just set it aside, you know, that guy's not going to give you a Christmas present next year. Yeah. You know, yeah. so you, you, you accept those things and, and there's a, there's a path in that, you know, it, it's kind of, it's kind of, I guess that's from my childhood, you know, from growing up with the, with the uh, Native American cats. You know? Yeah. Was that, that you just sort of just let the, let the universe kind of yeah. figure things out? Yeah. You know? I, I, I had a big I guess I still kind of am that way, but um, it's all these things have led to what they've led to, you know. And I, it's certainly not what I would have planned at any point. I mean, when I was a kid, I never would have guessed I'd be recording music and mixing records and stuff. Yeah, you but know, yeah, that, here you are. Yeah, I mean, I didn't. <laughs> you know, I always read the credits on my albums, and I was always, you know, I was very into that. But I always thought I'd be the guy you know, playing and writing and stuff. And I still do a certain amount of that. But, you know, I was lucky enough to get into the other side of it. And that's has its own reward. You know, that's that's a great thing, too. Yeah. What do you what would you say to somebody that's, uh, you know, looking to get into the recording arts? Man, I have no idea now. (laughs) That's a great thing to say, though. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, in my day, it was like, you know, like seriously there you would go to a studio and and if you were smart you found one that like did stuff you liked like if yeah. i would have been smart i would have gone to new york and you know lived on the street and and interned at record plant yeah you know but i wasn't i was doing what i did and things came as they came and and you know but what i what you did in those days was you just went in and you cleaned the toilets and you went for lunch you know and you you shut up, you didn't say anything, you sat in the back of the room really quietly and watched what the real guys were doing. Yeah. And then, you know, if they got sick, you kind of knew you could step up a, a step. You know, you got to be the assistant engineer instead of cleaning the toilets. Now you got to be the guy that wrote down the settings at the end of the session and charted everything, kept track of the takes and, and all that. Meanwhile, you got to sit a little closer to the console so you could see what the real guy was doing. Mm-hmm. And you could sit with the producer and, and kind of get like how people work, how you get a better performance out of an artist, all those kind of things. And then when the engineer got sick, you got to sit at the console and actually touch the faders, which was like, oh, <laughs> yeah, you know, I get to touch this huge thing, you know, it's great. And and uh, but now, man, now it's a whole different path, you know, not that that's not still valid. Yeah. Like I would encourage anybody to seek out Jay Messina and do whatever you have to do to sit there while he mixes a record and watch him. Yeah. You know, or or you know Jack Douglas or or any of the any of the great people that are out there. There are a million amazing, talented people making records. Yeah. 
but try to find the guys that have been there a long time that went through a lot and sit there and, and watch everything they do, man. And, and, you know, if you're lucky enough, get to ask some questions about why and what works and, you know, what should I do, and et cetera. You know, and, and most, most people that are in this industry are really helpful. Like there, there are a few guys that are really secretive that don't want to talk to you about, you know, oh, this is my thing. I don't do it. You know, but, yeah. but the thing is, even if you do things exactly the same as somebody else, the result is not the same. That's yeah. the beauty of, of music is you could follow an exact formula and it's never the same because of the person involved, the personalities involved. Yeah. So, you know, most of the guys that I was lucky enough to meet and talk to about engineering were cool enough to just say, yeah, here's, here's what I did on this and here's what I did on that, you know, and here's what, here's the reason I like this and here's the reason I like that and, and the theory of it, you know, yeah. which is awesome. Well, and now I would think that, you know, with the social media and the internet, it's almost easier to find those people oh, yeah. and, and ask questions Absolutely. and get connected. You know? Absolutely. It's like the same thing with playing an instrument, you know? Yeah, that's Go true. on YouTube, you can learn, you can get a visual lesson in how to play anything you want. Yeah. You know? And it's not as much of a struggle to find it that you were playing the wrong note for 10 years or whatever, you know? Yeah, yeah. Or singing the wrong words to a song that you heard on the radio because <laughs> you couldn't understand it. You know, and there was no no way to get the lyrics. Right, right. There was no rap genius back then. Right, dude. That's wild. Yeah, so it's great now. Now you have, you know, and again, it's kind of like, I I probably shouldn't say this, but it's it's kind of like the rest of the world. We have we have the knowledge of the world at our fingertips, and we use it for like porn and cat videos. (laughs) That's that's about the extent of it. And memes. That's yeah. Yeah. You know what I mean? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. It's true. It's scary. But it what else scary. would we what else would we do if not for porn and cat videos? Oh, you might learn, you know. <laughs> yeah, you stuff. might learn new languages or something. You else. know, nuclear physics or something, you know. Yeah. The resources are available, man. Anyone yeah. can do anything. Yeah, see that's that's the thing. Like two of the guys that, that I got to sit with and or at least talk to, you know, about what I do, about studio stuff. Yeah. Were were nuclear physicists. And they made great records. Wow. You know, like Tom Dowd, who was, in case you don't know, go look this guy up. There's a movie about him. It's easy to find out. Um, He was Atlantic Records, man. He was the guy that built studios for all these people. He was was Aretha Franklin and the Allman Brothers and Cream and and John Coltrane and, and, you know, you name it. Just about every, you know, he was the guy that took Dwayne Allman to meet Eric Clapton. And later that night, they came back and started Derek and the Dominoes, you know? Yeah. Like, you know, he's a piece of history. And he was like, he was a nuclear physicist and the coolest guy in the world. And he was not afraid to, like, take some stupid kid that met him in a break room at a studio and show him how to put, where he put the microphones on the Derek and the Dominoes record or... How did you record, you know, how did you record Disraeli Gears? Well, this this mic was six feet from Clapton's amp because it was so damn loud. You know? uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But, you know, that's that was the deal in my time. Was, yeah. that's, that was the only way you could find this stuff out. Like, there were big secrets. 
because you just couldn't meet all these people. Yeah. You know, the country was too big and there wasn't an internet. So, yeah. Yeah. Information was just harder to come yeah. by. Yeah. But now it's cool. Now you can, now you can get online and learn a lot of, a lot of good stuff. Yeah. It's just what you choose to do with it, man. You know, that's the bottom line with any of this crap that we're talking about is like, what are you going to choose to do with it? Yeah. You know, are you going to do cash me outside or, you know, are you going to do a symphony? It's up to you. I'm not implying that there's more value in either one. Yeah. At least not officially. (laughs) But, um, you know. So recently we put out um, through our Cigar City Management Label Services the uh, one of my favorite albums of all time, Soup Bones. Up, upon it's Soup Bones self-titled Soup Bones. album, yeah. Soup yeah. Bone, yeah. which uh, was a band you were in back in yeah. 2010, 2011. I or? have no idea. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but it was you and Kyle who has like one of the best right. voices I've ever heard. Well, it didn't you know. start with me and Kyle, oddly it, enough. Really? It started before Kyle moved down here. Oh. The, that started with me and a guy named Manny Yanez. Oh, yeah, yeah. I know Manny. Manny's like one of the great bassists of the world. I remember meeting him at Panda, actually. I, I yeah. Panda. He yeah. gave me one of the most frequently used guitar exercises I ever used. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he's, he's the cat, man. And we started, you know, he had lived in New Orleans quite a while. And Manny had, Manny left here at an early age to go play with like legendary people. Like he was in Iron Butterfly when he was 16. You know, he was, he did nine years with Patti LaBelle. He played Damn. with Robert Palmer. He played with the Neville brothers. Yeah. So, so Manny's a badass. Oh, d- yeah. Yeah. And, and, and has a, a unique groove to mm-hmm. his playing that I, I, Soup Bone almost didn't happen because I couldn't get him. Like we wrote a bunch of that stuff together. Yeah. And, and, I was such a prick to every bass player that auditioned for that band. Really? I really was. I want to acknowledge that in public because I was a dick because they couldn't play like Manny. You know, nobody could play that groove properly. And, you know, we ended up, I don't want to say we settled, but we found a guy that worked out great and, you know, played, played live a little bit, but that was the deal. Like early, we just wrote these things as like groove exercises. Yeah. Like, you know, we were trying to be the meters. Okay, yeah, yeah. And and uh, we we wrote these little grooves and stuff and put them together and, and got Mark Dupuy to come in and play drums on weekends to, to what was then just these grooves. And we would just play them for long periods of time and record them. And uh, I ended up cutting that stuff up into songs. You know, well, here's this sounds like a verse, this sounds like a chorus, this sounds like... And then when Kyle came down... I got the idea of like, well, why don't we make this the band, yeah. you know? And and originally it was just guitar, bass, drums, and, and Kyle singing. But when we recorded, we had everybody come in. Yeah, yeah. Like there's like, so many people played on oh, that. Oh, right? yeah, man. Yeah. Like like uh, uh, Mark Radice, who's a great piano player uh, from up north, is, he actually did Aerosmith tours and stuff as, as a keyboard player. I worked with him on a record uh, and, and you know, on some downtime, I was like, dude, you mind playing a song? Like, I get this, like, you got some chops, you could play this. So he played on the record and then Ross Rice, who is like a god among men and a force of nature in himself, had a band called Human Radio in the, I guess, 80s, was it 80s or 90s? 
but phenomenal band, way too good to be uh, to be popular, unfortunately. Yeah, sometimes that happens. Yeah, but Ross is like Ross is mega genius, and check out his solo records. Go buy Ross Rice's stuff because it's brilliant. Um, anyway, we got him down here. I was working on some records with him, which was like you know another one of those great moments for me. I get to meet my heroes. Yeah, and and it worked out that we got to through a great friend of mine uh, named Alan Craig. We worked out a deal where he would he could play on the Supone record. And then Rob Stoney came in, who I was playing with at the time, and him and Ross would play together at the same time in the studio. And, and you know, we just got all these, we lucked into having all these great guest artists come yeah. and play. Dave Reinhardt played drums on a couple tracks, and 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 uh, uh, Rob McDowell played bass on, on one, and, and Vince Caruso played on one. There's all kinds of guys on this record. Yeah. You know? Um, but then we went out and played as a trio for a while until Rob decided to join it was it was fun it was yeah. a fun time it was it was, it was crazy a, music yeah i remember there was one show that i went to see you guys at it must have been it was in definitely in Clearwater, but like not near the beach like like clear water probably two bucks it's i think it was it was two bucks. smokiest bar in the world yeah. yeah and uh i was definitely under 21 but might have even been under 18 at the time and no, you weren't. No, <laughs> definitely under twenty one. And they, uh, they, they didn't like. We weren't even allowed into the bar when we got there. Right. But I was like, oh well, we drove all this way just to see Supo, and they were like, really? You wanted to see these guys? <laughs> I was like, yeah, actually. They're like, okay, you can stay for the first set, and then you have to go. And yeah. that's what that's what I did. That was my yeah, only time seeing Supo. Was I saw those the guys first... were so nice, man. They would hire us whenever we had. Oh, you know, they would just. That's yeah. kind of where we played because we we played such weird stuff that we didn't fit in in, yeah, the, yeah. in the bar scene at all because we were playing like you know this wacky country music and and meter songs and yeah, our yeah. stuff and well that's know. why I had to come out and see it and that was the only place I could but luckily like I said they let me sit in for half of your show you know? yeah that's cool <laughs> but uh, yeah so that record now is officially on iTunes and Spotify and all over the internet. So you can go and find Soup Bone yeah, and same. listen to it. And and ignore it like the rest of the world. <laughs> <laughs> but it really is like honestly, it's been it's been a record where since since it came out, like uh, you know, you know how CDs are nowadays. Yeah. It's like I, I don't even know where I could find one of my CDs. So it's like I exactly. I've had the Soup Bone album uploaded into my computer, you know, then I sent it to Andy. And then Andy like had it on Dropbox, which was good because when my computer crashed, I was able to get it back oh, from Andy on Dropbox. Right. And then, you know, the you know, then Jason had it mm. and it kind of like went around like the album kind of floated. But we know, you know, I don't know where the original source of the album was, you know. Right. So but we've been listening to it for years. Yeah, but like nonstop. Yeah. Like every time I get I would get a new phone, I would make sure to like go into iTunes and load up my soup bone record so that if I just needed to listen to Take Your Drunk Ass Home or something, right. I was ready. Um, so seriously, if you listened this far, go to iTunes and buy it. Yeah, definitely. Because you won't you won't regret it. Yeah, so these guys can make a couple bucks. <laughs> pretty much. Pretty much. A couple pennies. Yeah, a couple pennies. Fractions of a penny. Yeah. Fractions of a penny. We get our hundredth of a cent yeah. per copy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but it, it really is like, you know, a record that that I love that I go back to just because the songs are so good. And like you said, that groove is like 
It really is. Kind yeah, there's of, some it, weird grooves on there. Yeah, it, some... it really is a love letter to New Orleans. I mean, there's a song "New Orleans" on there. Yeah, you know, it's yeah, uh, that's what it was, man. It was in a, it was it was my little period of obsession. Yeah, that that you know, I was lucky enough to bring people into. You know, yeah, and, and I'm glad now we can keep bringing ourselves into it and keep listening to it. You know, and I, I always mention, I guess, I always <laughs> mention "Take Your Drunk Ass Home," but that's you know, there's so many good songs on that. Right, record, but that song should know? be. Played at every bar at closing time in in the country. I totally agree. It should, yeah, yeah. I mean, it that's what should. it's about. So, yeah. all, all you guys that have bars, when you want to clear the bar out, put that song on because it's horrible enough that people will run screaming. <laughs> <laughs> They'll run, run for the exits. Jesus, what is this? Let's get out of here. Uh, so we're gonna close this episode out with Excellent. a track from the Soup Bone record. Oh, good. So, which one would you like us to? We might. You got to do that one now. Take your drunk ass home. You got to. I man. guess. I mean, it's the end of the it's show. The only way that's to close anything. Got, that's the only way. What else are you it. gonna use, man? Yeah. So you want to give give a little more context to this one, or do you want to uh, just let it play us out? Yeah, it started. This one started with the. Uh, uh, I had just bought a guitar. My mom had passed away, and I bought my first like cool semi-expensive vintage guitar yeah and and it was a a, a, a fender esquire and then what well, wasn't even a whole esquire it was a parts caster with an with a 56 esquire neck and a great guitar just had like just it just talked to me it was it was full of of songs and uh i got that that the riff for take your drunk ass was one of the first things i ever played on it and uh I put that into like song form as an instrumental to play at my favorite bartender's uh, birthday party at a club in Clearwater um, one year. Went out there and did that and and, and uh, kind of wrote the song for her. And uh, I've been living with her for 16 years now. So it kind of worked. <laughs> yeah. Later say. on, we went and wrote the lyric, kind of about that thing. Like when you hear this, you realize it's about a, a it's about a, a guy that pesters a bartender. You know, like just give me one more little drink, I'll go home. I just want one more, one more little drink, please. <laughs> you know, because it was close to. I lived like down the street from this club at one point. Yeah. You know, and Kyle, Kyle, and I lived there with, with his wife, and. uh it was just about stumbling distance, as we say, from from the house. Yeah. So, you know, we were kind of late night drunks for a while, and that's that's kind of the context of it. That's the deal. That's and great. brilliant, Maniana's bass line. You have to say that. And uh, I think Rob Stoney's on this one, and I'd have to look. I'm man, I don't pay attention to this stuff anymore. <laughs> How can you? You've made yeah. so many records. That, well, no, it's just that. You know, I just haven't even looked at that record in years. I just, I, and I'm not the guy that listens to the stuff I've done. Yeah, just, you put it away. Just, yeah, I, it's hard for me to go back and hear it. Well, we're gonna hear it now. There you go. <laughs> so, as promised, here's your fade out. Take your drunk ass home by Soup Bone. <laughs> Stumbled in the end zone 